Before we begin tonight, just want to encourage everybody to continue to be thinking about our upcoming gospel meeting with Robert Hatfield, September 18th, and be inviting friends and neighbors and be prepared for those evangelistic lessons about Jesus being the answer to various things. And uh, think about some people that you can invite and some people who would benefit from hearing those lessons. I know Robert and he'll do a great job and he's excited about coming here to preach uh, for us and with us. And um, it'll be a great meeting. And so be thinking about friends and neighbors to invite and go ahead and make sure you set your mind to be here for as many of the lessons as you can as well so that we can encourage and support our own gospel meeting. The book of Romans has been called Paul's greatest epistle, or at least his strongest as far as it relates to Christian doctrine and what it means for people to be saved. Paul's thesis is in Romans chapter 1, beginning in about verse 16, where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And Paul sets out in the book of Romans to say that Jews and Gentiles are saved under the same system. He lifts up the Gentiles and their sin problem in Romans chapter 1. And he says the Jews, though they had the Old Testament scriptures, were at no advantage as far as the way they ultimately behaved. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And the wages of sin, it's death, Romans 6.23. And so unless individuals are saved by grace through faith, there's no hope for either party. But Paul says there is hope. And he encourages his Jewish countrymen in Romans 7, 1 through 4 to leave behind the Old Testament law system. He says the Old Testament can let you know that you're a sinner. The Old Testament can break you and show you your failings, but it's impossible to be saved under that system because all it does is remind you over and over again at how short you come up. At the end of Romans 7, in verse 24 and 25, Paul cries out, speaking about himself, but really speaking on behalf of all humanity. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul's saying, I couldn't have been saved any other way, and I'm thankful that I've been saved through Jesus. You know, it's a terrible thing to try to be saved under a system that you can't be saved under. And to try to please God under a system that you can't please God under. To try to be justified by the Old Testament scriptures alone is detrimental. It's devastating. It's discouraging. But I believe equally discouraging is to be under a system where you can have blessed assurance, where you can know that you're safe for certain and not really ever enjoy those blessings. If you have your Bible tonight, go ahead and turn it to Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes what could be called the most glorious chapter in the book of Romans. And you can go a step further than that. It's probably the most glorious chapter in the New Testament. Paul begins in Romans 8 and verse 1 by saying, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And throughout this chapter, Paul lays it on thick, verse after verse, of all of the blessings that we have in Christ. This is the pivotal transition in the book, as Paul says, if you're in Christ, this is what is yours. Would you notice some of the things he mentions? Look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Paul says, no condemnation. Romans chapter 8 and verse 2, he says, you have the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8 and verse 11, he says we're indwelt by the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit of God. Romans 8, 14, he says, if you're sons of God, then you're led by the spirit of God. And in Romans 8, 15, Paul says you're adopted, you're sons. Romans 8 and verse 18, there is no suffering in the present world that will eclipse the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul says you're moving forward to greater and more eternal blessings. Romans 8, 24, he says, you are saved by hope. Romans 8, 26 and 27, you never pray alone. 
even when your suffering is so bad that you can't bring it into words, he says the Holy Spirit comes alongside you and he helps you when those groanings that you can't utter. He helps you to pray and all things work together for your ultimate good. If you're in Christ, Romans eight and verse twenty eight. You're predestined, you're called, you're justified, and you're glorified. Romans 8, 29 through 30, Paul says, if you're a Christian, this is your lot, this is your situation. What a shame to be under that old covenant system and believe you can be justified and realize you never could. But what a shame to have Romans chapter 8 be true about you and never really believe it, never really accept it, and never fully drink it in. And Paul says, this is where you stand in Jesus. After Paul has said all of these things, beginning in Romans chapter eight and verse thirty one, Paul poses a series of questions. And what I've done tonight is broken them down really into six. And we won't spend a great amount of time on them. But I just want you to think about tonight and throughout this week, Lord willing, I want to launch us into the week thinking about these six questions that Christians have to answer. Paul poses these questions to people that are in Christ and he wants us to come to the right conclusion. He wants us to answer these questions properly so that we can live properly in light of the gospel. And would you notice the questions beginning in Romans chapter eight and verse thirty one? What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up freely for us all. How will he not with him also freely give us all things? Who will lay anything to the charge of God's elect is God that justifies. Who is the one that condemns us? Christ who died? Yes, rather, who's raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. Paul says, as it's written for your sake, we're killed all the day long. Accounted as sheep for the slaughter. No, and all these things were more than conquerors through him that loved us. I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Would you notice the six questions that Paul poses tonight that Christians must answer and allow these six questions to launch you into the week as you think about your relationship to the gospel? Here's number one. What shall we say to these things? What things? Well, Paul's talking about the things he's just said in verses one through 30. All of the blessings that we have in Christ. Paul's point is, what shall we say about all of these things and our relationship? The fact that there's no condemnation, that we're spirit indwelt people, that the Holy Spirit helps us to pray, that we're adopted as children. Paul says, what are we going to say about these things? And the question we need to answer is, what are we going to say? Or furthermore, do we say anything about these things? Because God wants us to. He wants us to have the right mindset concerning the blessings and the promises that Paul has mentioned through these 29 verses so far, these 30 verses, so that we can view ourselves properly. A failure to do so is to not drink deeply enough from the gospel. What shall we say about the things that God has given to us in Jesus Christ? You know, these promises, Romans chapter eight, they're more than promises just to be read through or even promises to memorize. They need to be internalized by us so we can be God's people. What should we say about these things? We should read them often. Acts 17 and verse 11 says the Bereans search the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. We should take a passage like Romans chapter eight and we should read it often to see about these things and say, are these things true about me? Do I have this kind of relationship with God? We should hide these truths in our heart. Psalm 119 and verse 11 says, your word have I hid in my heart that I might not you. If you read Romans chapter eight and you see how much God loves you, it'll keep you from sin. We should share these truths with other people and speak openly and freely about what God's done for us in Christ. The psalmist says in Psalm 107, verse one and verse two, 
Thanks be to God for his goodness. And then it says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, who he's redeemed out of the hand of the enemies. We should echo these words from Paul and make them a regular part of our speech because we've been redeemed. You know, the doctrine of once saved, always saved is false. It's the idea that once you're saved, there's nothing you could ever do to lose your salvation. And we should say something about that. And I think down through the years we have. We've spent a lot of time telling people remain faithful until what? Until death. If you're not faithful till death, you won't be saved. You've got to finish. You've got to stick it through to the end. And we say that because the Bible does. And also to rebut the idea that, hey, once you're saved, you're done. But what about this idea that, yes, once saved, always saved is false. But you can be once saved and always saved. That there is the eternal security of the believer and that if you're in Christ, your salvation's not up in the air every day. Paul says, what are you going to say about these things? Are you going to say what God says about them and echo the assurance and the confidence that God wants his children to have? Paul says there's no condemnation for you. You're victorious in Jesus and you've got to see yourself that way or you'll never be all that God wants you to be. Say the right things about this passage because that's what God has done. One of the challenges of living the Christian life is how we use our tongue. James chapter three says nobody can control it. Sometimes we use our tongues to say things that we shouldn't say. And then sometimes we don't use our tongues to say the things that we should say. How do we talk about ourselves as Christians? Do we talk about ourselves as people that are just kind of barely making it? That might go to heaven or might not. That are really just losers and God rolled the dice and took a chance on us. Paul says, what shall we say about these things? Whatever we say. Make sure it lines up with what God said about you. There's no condemnation. You're spirit and dwelt. You're chosen and called and justified and glorified. All things work together for your good. This isn't pop psychology or Paul's way of just giving people a pep talk to make them feel better about themselves. These are the deepest and most glorious gospel truths. And Paul says, I want you to say with heaven so you can see yourself as you should. Now, here's question number two. If God be for us, who can be against us? Some of the scariest words in the Bible are these. I am against you, especially when they're on the lips of God. You might write these verses down and search them out later. But several times in the Old Testament, God says about his own people and about foreign nations, I'm against you. In Ezekiel chapter five and verse eight, Israel and Judah had lived so wretchedly, so sinfully that God finally says, I'm against you and there's nothing you can do about it. And Nahum twice in chapter two and verse 13 and at the end of the book in Nahum chapter three and verse five, God says about Assyria, I am against you. And listen, if God's against you, it really doesn't matter who's on your side or for you. Your defeat and your demise is guaranteed. But Paul flips it, doesn't he? And he says, if God be for us, who can be against us? Christians need to answer this question. This doesn't mean that there is no opposition. That's not Paul's point. Paul is saying, listen, there may be ideologies and people and doctrine and philosophies that are against you. But Paul's point is, if you're in Christ, do those things really stand a chance? If God be for us, it really doesn't matter who's against us because we're already victorious in him. God never loses a battle. And so if God's on your side, if God's for you, then who really can be against you? Don't you see Paul saying you're a winner in Christ? Yes, you can. You can overcome. There's no condemnation. All of God's blessings are lavished on you. And it really doesn't matter what the opposition says. How would your life change this very night if you really believed Romans chapter eight and verse thirty one? I don't mean just intellectually. If you really believe that the God of heaven, he's really not out to get you. 
He's not looking down from heaven, waiting for you to step out of line so that he can zap you and send you to hell. But instead, he's got his arms stretched out, waiting to welcome you home to heaven. What if you really believe that tonight? How would it change the way you live the Christian life? Because that's what the gospel teaches us. The Bible doesn't say, though, people believe this, that God so hated the world that he sent his only begotten son. It's God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Jesus didn't convince the God to love the world. God already did. Jesus came because God did love the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. What if God's really for you tonight? Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, 16, you know this verse for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. We don't talk about verse 17. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might have eternal life. The one that believes on the son is not condemned. That's you. You're a faithful Christian. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. What if God's for you? Hold your hand in Romans chapter eight and go ahead and move your Bible to first Thessalonians chapter five. First Thessalonians chapter five in this section, especially in verses six through eight, Paul is talking about the armor of God and a shorter version of that than he does in Ephesians chapter six. But would you notice what he says to the Thessalonians in first Thessalonians chapter five and verse nine? This is about every Christian in the world, and it helps us to answer the question of Romans chapter eight and verse thirty one. It says God has not appointed you to wrath but to obtain salvation in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means God has not set up judgment to destroy faithful Christians. God hasn't appointed you to wrath. God has things in your future. But if you're in Christ, condemnation is not one of those things. God hasn't appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation in Jesus Christ. If God be for us, who can be against us? Do you know the answer to that question? It doesn't matter who's against us. That's the point. We're always led in triumph in Jesus. Second Corinthians two fourteen. The weapons of our warfare aren't mighty or carnal, but they're mighty through God and they pull down strongholds in every thought, even our own, that casts doubts about our relationship with Jesus. Second Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. Paul says, I want you to know God's on your side. And too many times we live as if he's not. In Psalm 118 and verse six, the psalmist says, God's on my side. I won't fear. What can man do to me? God is our refuge and help, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, no fear. Psalm 46, verses one through three. Don't you see Paul saying, think about this, Christians. If God's for you, who can be against you? I think we know the answer to that question, but maybe our doubt sometime and our concern is this. Is God really for me? God's for the righteous, but is God really personally for me tonight? And we should think about it. What would God have to do tonight to convince you that God was really for you? What would it take for heaven to really get it across to us that, listen, I'm not against you. I'm rooting for you. I want you to be successful in Christ. I want you to live and have the abundant life in Jesus. What would God have to do tonight to convince you that I'm not against you? I'm on your side. What if God gave you every blessing from heaven that you needed? What if he blessed you every day with everything you needed, every good and every perfect gift? The Bible says he has James one in verse 17. Every good and every perfect gift. It comes down from above, from the father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. What if God gave you every good and every perfect gift, everything you enjoy in life? What if it came from him? Would you be convinced that God was for you? And what if God said, "Okay, you've messed up and I know everything about you and I still love you, even the worst things." If he knew everything you'd ever done and he still said, I love you enough to die for you. Well, the Bible says he does. He knows our thoughts are far off. Psalm 139 and verse two. The woman at the well said in John four and verse thirty nine, come see a man who told me everything I ever done. What if God knew everything about you? 
the worst thoughts, the most embarrassing deeds, the most wicked things you'd ever done. And God says, you're not going to stop me from loving you. Would you be convinced then that God was for you? What if God became a human being and performed on your behalf sinless perfection so that you might one day go to heaven with him? Matthew 26, Jesus says, this is my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Well, he's done that. And what if God had it all written down and then translated into your own language so that you could consult it and remind yourself over and over again about how much he loved you whenever you began to doubt? Would you be convinced then that God is for us? Paul says, if he is, who can be against us? Christians will not live the victorious life, the evangelistic life, the Christ empowered life that God would have us to live if we don't believe that heaven's really rooting for us, that God's really on our side, that we have passed over from being enemies to being allies, to being friends again. We've been reconciled with God. Romans chapter eight, Paul says, this is your relationship with God. Here's question number three. Will God freely give us all things through Jesus? Paul says, if God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up freely for us all. How will he not with him also freely give us everything we need? You know, Warren Buffett, he's an American investor. He's worth, they say, about 84 billion dollars these days. Just imagine if Mr. Buffett had a grandson who was terminally ill and they said, Mr. Buffett, we've got a cure for your grandson, but it's going to cost you about two million dollars. What do you think Buffett would do? He would pay it easily. He would pay it quickly. And what if he paid it and then he picked his grandson up from the hospital and they're on their way home and his grandson cries all the way home. And they finally get home and he says to his grandson, well, what were you crying about in the backseat all the way? He says, I'm dying of hunger. I'm hungry. I'm starving to death. He said, why didn't you say something? Well, you just paid all that money for me back at the hospital. And the last thing I would want to do is inconvenience you on the way home. It would be funny if it wasn't insulting. If he paid two million dollars to redeem his life, wouldn't he stop at Mickey D's and pay six dollars to redeem his hunger? And don't you know the Bible's telling us the same thing? He that spared not his own son, but delivered up freely for us all. Don't you think God's going to give you everything you need? If he gave the very best for us to redeem our eternal souls, do you really think God's holding out on us? Well, God, you've already done enough for me in Jesus, so I wouldn't dare ask for anything else. I don't expect to get anything else. Paul says that's not true. It's not that God gave Jesus and that's it. He says that's the beginning of his love. He starts with Christ and it's from there that he pours everything else into us. From Jesus, we learn God's going to give us everything we need to live for him. No wonder Jesus said, ask and you will receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it'll be open. Everyone that asks receives and the one that seeks and the one that knocks is open. You don't have to pry the blessings out of God's hands. His hands are already open because that's the kind of God he is. Do you believe that Jesus gives us freely all things, that God will give us freely everything we need in Jesus? Paul says you need to think about it. How do you view your relationship to God? Do you view God as a benevolent God who gives every spiritual blessing in Christ? Ephesians one and verse three or as somebody who's spiritually impoverished, just barely skating through, barely making it. Paul says that's not our relationship to God in Christ with Jesus. He freely wants to give us everything. This isn't about materialism or a prosperity gospel, but as it relates to our spiritual blessings in Christ, we can have everything that God desires for us to have so long as we approach him and petition him to just simply come to him and ask openly. He's already given us everything based on what he's done in Christ and the best is yet to come. But Paul says, do you believe that he will? The first lie that the serpent told Adam and Eve is that God has great things in store, but he's keeping them back for himself. God knows in the day you eat thereof, your eyes will be open. You'll be wise. You'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. And that's the last thing God wants. But the reality was God had blessed Adam and Eve with everything, everything that they needed, because he's a benevolent God who longs to bless his people. 
Will God give us all things freely through Jesus Christ? Do you see God as a benevolent God who offered up Jesus for our sins? Notice the text again. Paul says he that spared not his own son. What does that mean? You know, we read the gospel accounts. We read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And you say, well, who killed Jesus? And you would say, well, the Jews. Well, the Jews didn't drive a nail through. Yeah, but they handed him over to the Romans and that would be right. Well, the Romans are guilty. Surely they're the ones that carried out the execution. They were the government, government powers. They're the ones that executed Jesus. And that would be partially right, too. But Isaiah 53 says God was involved. It says it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Isaiah 53 and verse four. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. God inflicted punishment on Jesus. God was involved as well. You think about Genesis chapter 22 and Abraham walking Isaac up on Mount Moriah. Heaven intervenes and says, don't carry this out. Don't do this. But when Jesus has walked up Calvary, God is silent. Heaven doesn't say a thing. God delivered up Jesus freely for us all. He did it on our behalf. He let Jesus become sin for us so that we might become righteousness in him. Second Corinthians 521. If God loves us that much, we should never live a day of our lives questioning his love. We may not get everything we always want. Every prayer we want answered doesn't always go our way. But here's one thing we know. Whatever happens, it's never because God doesn't love us. It's never because there's something that we should have that we need that God says, well, I don't want to give you this. Paul says, will God give us freely everything in Jesus? Here's number four. Who will lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who's going to charge God's people with transgression? Who will lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who can come alongside God's people and say, here's something you've done wrong. Now, remember, go back up to Romans chapter eight and verse one. This is all in the context of condemnation and whether or not God's people are justified based on the gospel in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, who lays anything to the charge of God's elect? Who can march in the heaven's courtroom with their portfolio and say, well, I know what they've done. And I know you're not about to let them in heaven, God. Nobody can change God's mind about God's people. That's Paul's point. God has the only database of sin that matters. All sin is ultimately against God. And if God says there's no condemnation, you're guilty, you're, you're free, you're innocent, then you are. Who will lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who will charge God's people with sin and their charges stick? Nobody. It's God who justifies but who sometimes likes to bring charges? Sometimes it's Satan. The Bible says that he's an accuser of the brethren and he accuses us before God day and night. Revelation 12 and verse 10. Sometimes the devil comes before God and he says, you know what they've done? You know what this person's guilty of? You know what they've done in the past? You know what they've done? Yeah, they've asked for forgiveness. But do you know how guilty this person is? Paul says, who will lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Sometimes it's ourselves. We sometimes lay charges on ourselves. We think about the things that we've done and the hardest person to forgive is yourself. First John three and verse 20. John says, if our heart condemns us, God's greater than our heart and God knows everything. You can't even lay charges against yourself that would change God's mind about you. If God says you're forgiven, you are. And you don't get to stand as the jury on your own heart and say, but I don't feel forgiven. It's not about how you feel. It's about what the heavenly record book says. And if God says there are no charges, there are no charges. Sometimes it's our past. You know, Paul said a lot about himself. You can read in First Corinthians 15 and Ephesians three and First Timothy chapter one. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, the least of the apostles, the one greatest of the most heinous crimes against New Testament Christianity. But notice Paul said all them all those things about himself. God never did. We can say all types of things about ourselves. Well, I was the most terrible person. I've done all these things. You don't know what I've done, preacher. But what does God say? Your own past doesn't get to condemn you. God says it's wiped away, it's forgiven, it's forgotten. It really is. And sometimes it's our enemies. 
People that knew us before, people that know us now, they may try to remind us of our past and say, well, you can't fool me. I know you go to that church building now. I know people think you're religious now, but I knew you before. I know the real you. Who will lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Well, people can try the devil, Satan, ourselves, our past, our enemies. But when they stand before the heavenly courtroom, they all around one by one with the same response. Not guilty. Not guilty. I see no charges. There's nothing that sticks. In this heavenly courtroom scene, God is not only the judge on the throne, but as God looks at us, those that are being accused, there's someone standing next to us. And it's his son, God, the son, the divine that stands up as our heavenly representation, our lawyer, our advocate. First John, chapter two, one through two. And, you know, the devil has his portfolio. He brings up all these sins, all these charges. And God looks down and he says, I don't see any guilty charges. Question number five. Who is he that condemns? You know, this question is a little different from the last one. This one's a little more pointed. This is about condemnation. Who can come alongside God's people and actually bring a verdict of condemnation against the people of God? Who can do that? Who is he that condemns the person of God? I've never been to a wedding like this, and maybe you have. I've only seen it in movies where they'll say at the end of the wedding ceremony or right before the end, does anybody have any reason why these two people shouldn't be wed? And normally somebody's uncle at the back says, well, I've got a reason why. Maybe these two people shouldn't be. But you know what? Maybe Paul perceives something like that. Paul's running down this list in Romans chapter eight, and somebody just kind of raises their hand and says, hey, well, what about this? Well, who is the person that condemns? And Paul sits him back down and he says, it's Christ who died who was raised from the dead, who's seated at the right hand of God, making intercession. He's the only person that could condemn. And just like he told the woman in John chapter eight, where are your accusers? Go and sin no more. Would you notice Romans eight thirty four? Notice the things that Paul says God has done for us. Jesus died for our sins. First Timothy two and verse six. He gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified of at the proper time. Paul says he rose from the grave. He rose on our behalf. Luke 24 and verse six says he's not here. He's been raised. He makes intercession for us, seated at the right hand of God and makes intercession on our behalf. When you read Romans eight, it's amazing what's taking place. No wonder nobody can bring charges against us. God, the father has pronounced us uncondemned. The Holy Spirit helps us to pray Romans eight, twenty six and twenty seven and intercedes for us. And then the Bible says Jesus is interceding for us. No wonder the Godhead can't hear anything negative about the people of God. There's this glorious conversation going on about you between father, son and Holy Spirit. And all they're saying is not guilty, justified, not condemned, a son, a daughter of God, Paul says, who can lay anything that will stick to the charge of these people as people bring in their testimony against Christians? God doesn't want to hear it because they've already been forgiven in Jesus. Paul says, this is how you've got to see yourself if you're going to be God's person. If you're going to be faithful to him, if you're going to see yourself in light of the gospel, you've got to come up with the right answer to these questions. All of the questions Paul poses in Romans 8, they're rhetorical. These are questions that the Romans would have said, of course we understand. And we say that tonight, but throughout our week, throughout our lives, we sometimes doubt the reality of the answers. And when we do, we live below our spiritual privileges. Somebody says, well, we want to evangelize. We want to be more evangelistic. We want to reach Warren County. You don't invite people to heaven if you don't believe you're going. If you don't believe that you're sure that you're saved, you won't encourage other people to do it. If you don't believe you're living the victorious life in Jesus Christ, it's hard to be heavenly advertisement and encourage other people that this is truly the best life to live. And so Paul says, listen, I'm telling you, Jewish brethren, this is really the best life. You don't have this under the old covenant. You want this in Jesus Christ. It's the only place you can get it. 
And then in the last place, Paul says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And from verse 35 through verse 39, Paul mentions everything you can think of. He mentions persecution or calamity or distress or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. And verse 38 through 39, Paul starts in heaven. He goes through death. He mentions everything you can think of. And he says nothing. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. As we live the Christian life, we should judge our circumstances based on what heaven says about us and not heaven based on our circumstances. Maybe you're going through hardship right now and difficulty and you feel like based on those circumstances, maybe the love of God isn't all that it should be towards you. But Paul says nothing you experience in this life can separate you from the love of God. There isn't any earthly circumstance that changes how God feels about us. But far too often there are earthly circumstances that change how we feel about God. Paul says nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. You name it, whatever it is. God's love is more powerful than that. And God's love pushes through that and gets to us and nothing can separate us from God. And based on that, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind, which says he loves me. He loves me. He really does love me. And I want to serve him and love him back. You read the Old Testament and what you're going to find are a lot of rules, a lot of laws, a lot of restrictions and a lot of failure on our part to measure up. And you just imagine being a Jewish person, living your whole life under this system and trying your dead level best to measure up, to be as faithful as you can be. And every morning, what the law reminds you of is you're a failure. Nobody knew that better than the Apostle Paul. Nobody was more zealous, did their best to be more obedient, did everything they could to be more studious and more faithful. And Paul says the old law just reminds me that I'm a failure, that I'm a loser, that I've fallen short. And then Paul gets to Romans chapter eight. When you look at the end of Romans chapter seven, Paul's warring with himself. And it's a shame that Christians know the end of Romans chapter seven better than they know Romans eight. Paul says, when I want to do good, evil's always present with me. And he talks about this flesh warring back and forth. But that's not the end of the story. Paul's exclamation mark is Romans chapter eight, where he says no condemnation, no more separation from God's love. It's no longer based merely on human performance. But it's based on what God's done for me in Christ. And if you know the answer to these six questions, doesn't matter what the world throws at you, doesn't matter what the doctors say, doesn't matter what financial investors say, doesn't matter what the politics take place in our world, whatever happens. You can say, you know what? God's given the very best for me. He's not holding out on me. The best is yet to come. I'm a victor in Jesus Christ and not a victim. And based on that. You can live the victorious life, which ultimately lands you in the very presence of the God who gave us Romans 8 to begin with and who will one day say to you what Romans 8 already has told you. You're innocent, not guilty. Welcome home. Maybe tonight someone needs to obey the gospel. Paul says it's the power of God unto salvation in Romans 1.16. And when you believe in the gospel, it causes you to turn away from sin, to confess with the mouth. Paul says that in Romans 10, 9 and 10. And to be buried with him in baptism. Paul mentions that in Romans six, three and four. Paul preaches the gospel in Romans. And he says, when you do this, you rise to walk in newness of life. You're a new creature. And then these six questions become the compass of your life, the way you view life and you see your life through Christ tinted glasses. That it's not really about all that you've done. That's not the goal in Christianity. It becomes a lot more about what Jesus has done and what he's done on your behalf. And how that changes everything about you. If you want to lay hold on those promises tonight, we'd be happy to assist you if you already have and you have fallen back into sin. You know, all of these promises in Romans eight are true, but we can so live as to turn away from these things and put ourselves back into condemnation. Nobody can take us out of God's hand. Jesus said in John 10, but we can freely walk out of it if we desire. And maybe you need the prayers of the church tonight to help you to remain faithful. 
We're going to stand and sing a song to encourage us. If you need to respond, come now as together we stand and as we sing.